This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Eric Day, CFO for the Warren Henry Auto Group, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 131. Fundamentally, to fund the SaaS business and to continue to accelerate the growth of the, of the SaaS business, we actually needed to generate tons of EBITDA on the services side. And the biggest in- insight that we as finance provided was, as opposed to doubling down and continuing to invest on the SaaS side, even though that was our fastest growing business, we should actually invest in our services side to unlock more working capital and more cash flow to fund the SaaS business. Um, and that's what really allowed us, I think, the, the last four quarters when I left, where we actually got to uh, almost free cash flow break even, and we were able to generate uh, enough cash to actually fund some of the best quarters on the SaaS side as well. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ananth Ava, CFO for Rike, an enterprise software developer specializing in enterprise collaboration and project management software. Rike is Ananth's second CFO tour of duty, having served as CFO of LiveOps, where Ananth helped to lead a transformation that would split the company into two business units, services and SaaS development. Ananth traces his career path back for us, shares a transformation tale, and explains his latest finance priorities at Reich after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. specializing in project management software. Anant, welcome. Hey, good morning, Jack. Nice to to be here. So as always, we look forward to learning about uh, your company and its offerings. Uh, But first, uh, if you wouldn't mind, take a step back and share with us what those milestones, career milestones were that you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, the finance organization in three vectors. The first is finance operations, the second is accounting, uh, and the third is more SP&A slash analytics. 
Um, I was really fortunate in that I started my career um, as sort of the foundation of accounting at KPMG. Um, so as a public accountant, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of uh, large semiconductor companies, and in fact, even worked on one uh, that went public, all the way to a lot of small venture-backed companies. So saw a myriad of accounting challenges and issues. Um, as I went through that particular process, um, especially the S1 process and going through the IPO, really was fascinated by asset management um, and wanted to transition into an asset management foundation to get more experience and exposure to that high-end finance, uh, everything from business modeling all the way to investor relations. So I had the opportunity to work at an equity research firm slash a hedge fund firm down in San Diego called Point Advisors. Uh, it was a very unique experience um, for two reasons. Um, the first is we did one thing and exclusively focused on one thing at that time, which was shorting companies. Um, and from a timing perspective, uh, 2008 uh, certainly gave us an enormous tailwind. But secondarily, um, and more importantly, I think to be on the short side on Wall Street, um, you have to be a generalist. Uh, most companies are very well run, um, especially those that reach a certain stage in size. So there's a lot of um, research that had to be done, and we had to really vet our thesis before publishing it um, and get it right. And that's where I got a lot of exposure on not just sort of the complex financial modeling, but also developing a very, very crisp investment thesis and researching companies and various business models across various industries. Um, after doing that for about two and a half years, um, I felt I had that really strong foundation in finance and accounting, uh, but I wanted to transition back into corporate finance and a leadership role, and one of the key areas that I was missing uh, was fundamental finance operations. So everything from implementing systems, supporting new product launches, to standing up the infrastructure and backbone for finance. Um, I was really lucky in that Google reached out to me um, specifically for treasury, corporate, and finance operations roles, and I really leaned in in finance operations, and what better company to learn from on scaling a multi-billion dollar, uh, or supporting and scaling a multi-billion dollar company than Google, uh, where I was responsible for co-managing, if you will, over 1,400 resources across the globe that stood up everything from order to cash, to procurement to pay, to payroll. So I felt sort of the key milestones and the foundational journey towards the CFO was covering off the basis in accounting, finance, and finance operations. Uh, so once I got to live off, I, I felt that I was in a good position to execute on those three areas. So uh, along the way, I know that you also got an MBA, but was that, uh, did you get that before uh, KPMG or was that, uh, did that follow? Yeah, I got my MBA, uh, between Google and LiveOps. Um, so it was a really interesting program. Um, I think the first of its kind. So North Carolina uh, had launched this sort of pseudo-hybrid online and in-person MBA. Um, and I was looking at different MBA programs even here, which was a part-time part MBA role um, in Berkeley as well as Santa Clara University. The challenge, of course, is uh, whether it be Google or LiveOps, there's a lot of travel. 
um, that came with the job, especially visiting some of our operations in India and Philippines and Poland. And it would, had been really difficult to commit to that. Um, and I certainly didn't want to take a break um, and commit to a full-time MBA. So this was sort of the best of both worlds where I was able to attend a great university uh, but have the flexibility while doing that as well. So when you leave KPMG, you go to uh, Voyant Advisors, which is, is equity research. And it, uh, in my mind, begs the question, were you thinking of going the corporate finance route? Or was this uh, intended to be broadening and open, your, open the door to other paths? Yeah, no, that's, it's a great question. Uh, yeah, certainly that transition from public accounting, at least at that stage, to quote-unquote, equity research or asset management is a bit unusual. Um, I think part of it, just stepping back and going through sort of my educational background, was um, I went to the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I actually had a broad-based experience there as well between accounting and economics. Um, and I, I was pretty analytical uh, from, from the start and even worked as a research assistant and a teaching assistant. And that analytical side of me um, was really yearning for broadening the sort of intellectual and experiential education well beyond accounting. So I knew I wanted to do something well beyond uh, the technical facets of accounting and going to some of the complex issues in accounting to more of a future-looking slash forward-looking role that traditional finance roles uh, afford, and I knew I wanted to do that, and I was looking at investment banking and equity research, and I think this particular role was interesting, and I was able to actually fit in pretty well, because building a short thesis, you, not only do you have to be good at the finance side of it, but you actually have to have a really, really good understanding of accounting, because on the short side, you're also looking for that dislocation in the financial statements and building an investment thesis on what's going to happen in the financial statements. It could be an earnings miss, it could be a revenue miss, it could be an unusual change in working capital. You really have to understand the nitty-gritty technical accounting facets to be able to build that thesis. So uh, this firm particularly looked at my background as being useful and then I was able to build on top of it. Um, and Certainly on the corporate finance question, I, I always felt that that was my true north. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I knew being in professional services like KPMG or in asset management slash asset management research role, um, like, like Moint was extremely beneficial and helped sort of learn um, how finance leaders should think about evaluating organizations. But... I wanted to be an architect, and I wanted to actually go in and be one of the change agents to build a company. So I, I always knew what I wanted to do from a corporate finance perspective. Uh, I think for me, I was just trying to look for a way to sort of get in and grow uh, in that capacity. And I was really fortunate that those two roles in the early part of my career built that strong foundation. Well, I have one more follow-up. I can't uh, resist asking uh, 
for you to share some observations about uh, the Google Finance function and uh, perhaps what you experienced there in terms of uh, the other people you were working with, whether they shared a similar background as you. Tell us, tell us something about this experience. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I would say at Google, one of the most fascinating things was just the diversity of thought and ideas and thought leadership. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my peers, she was sort of a PhD student in linguistics. Um, that was her background. Uh, so it had nothing to do with finance, uh, but she came from a linguistic, linguistics background and sort of did an MBA and had such an interesting perspective when it came to contract negotiations and SLA negotiations because she'd go really deep on the meaning and the intent behind the contract. And she did an excellent job communicating uh, with a lot of our vendors and as, as well as internal stakeholders, almost like our, our own PR person. Then there's another person. Um, the guy was brilliant, Harvard MBA grad, um, and he was in Iraq uh, for, for a good three to four years and had this incredible stories and incredible experiences of standing up what I would call basic procurement and finance operations in the middle of a war zone. So I would say, you know, all of us were very unique, and we really celebrated the unique experiences that we brought to the table. And we always envisioned that for any situation in time, for example, if we required very strong communication and we wanted to drive change management through the organization, um, you know, we'd lean in on the person who had that linguistics background to review all of our presentations and make sure that our messaging was, was on point. If it meant deploying in remote areas where we didn't really have feet on the ground and we had to stand up finance operations pretty quickly, we'd lean on the guy who served in Iraq. So it was a really interesting team, and it was really fascinating to sort of see how we, we all have brought a unique set of strengths and principles to the table. Okay. So you uh, join Reich as uh, a chief financial officer. You had one earlier tour of duty uh, at LiveOps where you, uh, you joined LiveOps and you got uh, promoted into, uh, into the CFO office. Um, but we want to touch on with you as you jump to Reich uh, to lead this finance function, uh, and I see also operations, I believe. What was the challenge that you wanted to meet here? What was it that brought you to Reich? Yeah, I think I had, if, if you look at the, my background before Reich, um, I was primarily in well-established, large um, professional services institutions or the Googles of the world, which are multi-billion dollar companies. And LiveOps was also fairly sizable at the time, uh, north of $100 million in revenue. So... I came from organizations that benefited from infrastructure and process. Um, and when I came to Reich, um, I came to a company that was sub $10 million in annual recurring revenue, and I was probably the second finance person there. Um, so the challenges were very different in that when I arrived here, it was a, a classic venture-backed company. Um, we had about um, 100-odd employees um, spread across the globe. Um, we were on QuickBooks and cash-based financials. Um, and then we had world-class investors um, with Bain and Scale who 
we're really leaning in and looking for not just your conventional revenue-driven SaaS metrics, but also efficiency metrics, as well as just really trying to understand a balance sheet of cash flow and traditional what I would call financial analysis, where we did not have that um, at, at the time that I had arrived. So I had the benefit of building the team from scratch, um, and that was a really, really unique experience and journey in that you know, the problems were not of optimization and solving, but the problems were really architecting this fundamental processes and systems so we can build the organization to scale, where at this time, that same team is sort of looking forward over the next two or three years and thinking about a potential sort of exit or an IPO process and thinking about how do we continue to scale that infrastructure towards a well-run, well-oiled, mature, publicly traded company. So starting that journey from sort of not almost nothing uh, was the biggest challenge when I arrived. And now uh, the next challenge is sort of taking that very, very baseline infrastructure and making it even more scalable to address sort of the needs of either public markets or more mature investors is what we're looking to do today. Well, tell us about Reich. What what are these offerings? And I know it's uh, project management, but that uh, we, we, we come across quite a few firms that have project management offerings. What sets this firm apart? Yeah, um, so we're in the enterprise work collaboration and collaboration management space where project management is one subset of it. Um, we've got over 500 employees on a worldwide basis. We have over 14,000 customers. Um, and we think of sort of the world changing um, literally on, on how they work. Um, so as knowledge workers, um, I, I sort of go back in time where, you know, email disrupted snail mail, then messaging platforms disrupted email. We're on the job of sort of disrupting that entire ecosystem or building on top of that ecosystem where you are – either a marketing team, a professional services team, a program management team, where you have these intense workflows and processes, and you're responsible for delivery. And this isn't your traditional five-year building an oil rig type of a project, but these are quick, agile, nimble, one-week to two-week sprints, and you needed a platform to get your entire team coordinated. And our mission is to make those teams insanely productive. So our job is to sort of unlock that collaboration flow and unlock the potential of the team to drive execution. And it's been a great journey where every month we get thirty to 40,000 uh, unique trials uh, knocking on our door looking for a solution to help their teams grow. So what is it then that uh, – what are the metrics that you're paying close attention to? We can certainly make some guesses, but we'd rather have you share them with us. Sure. Um, I think there's sort of three buckets. Um, the first bucket is more in the traditional funnel metrics. Um, so how many trials do we go through, how many get assigned, how many opportunities were created, and what was the close rate? So. We're a high-velocity, high-transaction business, very much like a box or a HubSpot. So looking at that funnel velocity and looking at how the funnel is growing and shape-shifting is important for us. 
The second is your classic SAS metric. Um, so we look at our new MRR, upgrade MRR, gross new MRR, churn MRR. We pay very close attention to CAC, CLTV, as well as our gross and net sales and marketing efficiency metrics. And then lastly, we pay a lot of attention to um, traditional financial metrics around gross margin as well as free cash flow. Um, one of the things that we're noticing, especially in our space, is um, especially given that it's still greenfield, we can actually scale and grow um, in, in a very capital efficient manner. Um, so, you know, few companies have sort of gotten to our size and scale uh, with roughly $26 million in equity financing. So we pay a lot of close attention to continue to keep that capital efficiency as well as the unit economics well beyond sort of CAC um, and into R&D, GNA, and some of the other areas uh, to ensure that we can continue to scale that way. We uh, like to ask uh, finance leaders these days about how they're going about measuring uh, customer success uh, particularly when it's a, a SaaS uh, finance uh, leader, uh, what would you share with us? Is there a, uh, your view of the world these days? How do you uh, measure customer success? Yeah, no, I, I think I've been very fortunate to write in that, um, you know, I've been the CFO and the COO, and I've had the opportunity to run sales, marketing, as well as um, our customer success and customer support organization. So, when, when I had this broad purview, uh, it forced me to really take a data-driven approach on not just the output, which is a financial metrics, but actually looking at each of these organizations and putting in some clear markers. Um, I'll give an example. I think when it comes to professional services or even customer success, um, it's almost essential uh, for SaaS companies to double down in those two areas because ultimately pleasing your customers and ensuring that you're delivering business value uh, through your platform is what these two departments own and that's what governs the renewal rates and churns. I.e. ultimately from as finance leaders we look at the results of it um, but there's the key thing is to sort of go a little further into it and really look at the inputs that are driving the outputs and we pay very close attention on, from a customer success standpoint, how do we segment our customer base? And we actually have sub-unit economics where we say, okay, if it's an enterprise-grade customer, then we should have X percentage of, of the revenue dedicated to customer success because we want to over-invest in this particular segment to drive expansion because uh, the use cases are very broad and there's a deep size of wallet. Um, and then as you go down into mid-market and SMB, we try to take a more scalable approach, which is building sort of like university or almost like a self-service slash mass distribution channels in order to ensure that our customers get educated and get value from our product. And that education process has very different unit economics and very different delivery methods. So in fact, I think what, what we found really interesting and what we benefit for as CFOs is in general we quote unquote own and report on that business model um, and it continues to evolve where we're taking sort of the outputs from the financials and then we're moving backwards into 
operating metrics and KPIs and driving sort of that attribution on if I did X on the investments on the operations side, that should derive Y or Z on the finance side. Okay, so let me ask now for a finance strategic moment, and that would be a moment of strategic insight that you've experienced as a finance leader, given your lines of sight into the organization uh, that you've experienced during the course of your career. What would you share with us? Yeah, I think um, one of the most sort of interesting strategic insights uh, was at LiveOps, where the company was going through a pretty big transformation where we had a services business um, that constituted a majority of the revenue, uh, and we had an emerging SaaS business uh, within the organization, which is a cloud-based contact center solution business uh, that was growing and growing extremely quickly. Um, and at the board level and sort of at the executive level, the unit economics between the two were a bit obfuscated because uh, while the revenue was clearly tracked, all the delivery and the, the cost units behind it were unclear. And one of the things that I brought to the table was separating um, and literally creating two business units under the umbrella of one being a services business and one being a SaaS business, uh, driving the whole process on a quality of earnings and making sure that we actually had those demarcations. And then driving very clear line of sight on the unit economics on the services side where the metrics were much more EBITDA and free cash flow focused um, versus on the SaaS side, we had the more traditional uh, sales and marketing efficiency as well as net, re net renewal and net retention rate dynamics where we're able to very clearly articulate um, why those investments mattered and how quickly that revenue stream was growing. And that sort of gave the, a clear baseline to the board on how to quote unquote evaluate the business. And one of the fascinating things that we found was um, the board was very excited about the multiples and sort of the value creation on the SaaS side, but fundamentally to fund the SaaS business and to continue to accelerate the growth of the, business, of the SaaS business, we actually needed to generate tons of EBITDA on the services side. And the biggest in insight that we as finance provided was, as opposed to doubling down and continuing to invest on the SaaS side, even though that was our fastest growing business, we should actually invest in our services side to unlock more working capital and more cash flow to fund the SaaS business. Um, and that's what really allowed us, I think, the, the last four quarters when I left where we actually got to uh, almost free cash flow break even, and we were able to generate uh, enough cash to actually fund some of the best quarters on the SaaS side as well. I'm curious as you look forward, uh, you know, we're so accustomed to the venture world being tied uh, to Silicon Valley. Uh, Ten years from now, will you be uh, in the Bay Area still? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, one of the benefits of sort of being here is it's incredible uh, to meet sort of a new talented of entrepreneurs and the fantastic ideas um, that they come out with. Um, but I am seeing, for example, whether it be North Carolina, the Research Triangle, um, San Diego, Austin, Texas, 
your, your sort of usual suspects around the country, technology hubs. Um, there's, there's sort of, I wouldn't call it a bias, because ultimately the Silicon Valley is still the largest market when it comes to where venture capital gets deployed, but there is this sort of romance and sort of a hidden talent pool of folks where when you think about building big businesses and going, you know, over the next five to ten years and taking a company through the entire journey, there's very limited parts of the world um, where you're able to do that. And I, I'm seeing more and more of these technology hubs emerge across the country where you're seeing equally great ideas and there are these entrepreneurs who are not necessarily looking for a sort of a quick exit but looking to build a very sustainable, valuable business. So I think for me, um, as I said, like in the beginning, I've always sort of wanted to go into corporate finance to be part of that build process. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, I go where the opportunity takes me, if you will, uh, on, on joining one of those companies. What would you tell us about uh, some of the talent challenges that you faced um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to the organization's workforce, what are your priorities as a finance leader today? It's a great question. Um, and one of, the, one of the exercises that I wanted to be actually going to the next quarter is to, we, we do such a great job on sort of the business metrics and the financial metrics, but I wanted to sort of drive up at the executive level human capital management metrics and paying really close attention to it. Um, I think the war for talent's gotten pretty complicated, um, especially with the interjection of millennials. And, and being one of them, I can say um, the sort of the value proposition that you have to provide as an employer is changing. Um, and I think as finance executives, the first thing we think about is comp, but a lot of it candidly has to do with uh, the quality of the managers and the quality of leaders that you bring to the organization. And number two, um, giving enough of a latitude and a learning experience for this emerging workforce to continue to grow and learn. Um, and so the way we've always positioned ourselves in the marketplace here, or, or we have seven offices across the globe, but anywhere across the globe is we our employer value proposition is to, quote-unquote, get the up-and-comer, right? Um, we're not looking for someone who's already been there and done that and executed in a certain capacity. We're looking for those leaders and those individual contributors who are on that upward uh, moving arc in their career. Um, and what we basically give them is a very wide latitude in terms of their roles and responsibilities and help them groom themselves into leaders. And that's been working for us pretty well, um, where you know we take a very disciplined approach on comp, um, and we sort of say that here's a comp for these particular bands, and this is what we want to do. Um, but we're really looking for those individuals who want to take their experiences and do more with it um, in our organization. And we want to make sure we give those wide guardrails uh, for those individuals so they're able to do that when they come in. So that's, that's what I've been seeing is the conversation needs to, it is shifting and needs to shift away from, I would just say, your traditional sort of turnover um, as well as comp benchmarking much more into, like, you know, if you are hiring, like, a young, talented sales account executive, 
um, it's not just about measuring them on bringing in the dollars, which is certainly a, a key key facet of their role, but sort of expanding that where you, you're giving them the opportunity to speak to product, you're giving them the opportunity to influence that product roadmap, and enabling them to deliver customer insights back to our engineering and product team, building some of those, those railroads are extremely important in keeping that talent force engaged and retained. Okay, we're going to enter our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor your uh, finance leader peers and aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? I think the role of finance, especially in the SaaS and software side, is is changing. Um, I think if you use myself or a lot of the SaaS executive leaders um, in the finance role, uh, we ultimately aren't just doing the traditional role of asset allocation within the organization and, and building budgets and driving the organization towards a financial outcome, but we're actually getting pretty deep and involved on guiding our peers on what are the operational KPIs and how the business model should work, everything from pricing to marketing to product positioning. So one of the best things and most exciting things about being a finance leader today is, is we're, we're very, very, um, we're sort of in an era where we're very, very fortunate to have tons of data um, and there's sort of few organizations outside finance that are able to take that data and drive both financial and operational insights. So it's a great time to sort of come into that particular world. What is it that that piece of information, perhaps, that you wish you have had you had as you entered the CFO office for the first time? What is it that you wish someone had told you, perhaps, as you entered that office for the first time? Yeah, I think. If someone had told me that this role is less about finance and had a lot more to do with uh, operations and sort of helping drive uh, the the boat forward, so just really getting into sales and marketing and marketing strategies and sales execution strategies, that would have been very helpful uh, when I first came in because. Ultimately, um, you know, like, like, like I, I mentioned in the past, finance is really great at sort of reporting on some of the key metrics and driving direction, giving guidance on where things go. But I think the expectation for a lot of the finance leaders today isn't just about that, but really becoming that true business partner in every sense of the word where you're actually going down and you're actually getting on customer calls, you're actually doing customer site visits, and really understanding what's the value proposition that your product is delivering and if it's positioned properly and if it's priced properly, finance needs to have an opinion on all of that. And I, I wish I had known that because then my MBA program as well as my undergrad and grad, I would have probably paid much, much more closer attention to some of those softer topics, if you will. Uh, so I would have been an even more effective leader in this role. Do you have a personal habit that you feel has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, I think learning. Um, I think just given the sort of the expanding role of the CFO, you know, I've, I've sort of invested very heavily in education and certification. So 
I, I went really hard at getting, you know, the CPA, uh, undergrad, a grad, an MBA, and then consequently um, my CMA and my CFA as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, like, well, what's the point of collecting all these, these titles and degrees? And, uh, frankly, I, I always looked at it as you, you really have to go pretty deep on some of these disciplines and continue to learn um, because of the growing demands on finance executives. Um, at the end of the day, you, you don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden you're going from a software business and you have to now manage a business where it's very rich with inventory and you don't have a very, very strong foundational understanding in, let's say, cost accounting. Um, or you're going from that to a professional services organization where um, you don't really have a good grasp of the key KPIs around um, utilization as well as billing uh, to drive real insights as a finance leader in that organization. So learning and continuing to dip your toe in all of these different fields um, and with finance being the core is hugely important for emerging leaders in our profession. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, I think going back to uh, sort of my career, Contrarian Days of a Short Seller, one of the books that I read recently was Zero to One by Blake Masters and Peter Thiel, where uh, the thesis is fantastic, which is, you know, when you come into the VC community, there's, there's this, um, the standard thesis is, hey, here's a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar marketplace, and we're coming up with a product to really disrupt competition and completely flank them, versus the thesis in this book had a lot to do with, uh, at all costs, avoid competition and build a monopoly, because uh, that's where you're going to unlock uh, multi-billion dollar outcomes. And I, I thought it was a fascinating read on one of the best venture capitalists in the Valley and how, how he thinks through uh, which businesses he has to, has to put in. So anyone who's interested in sort of going into a venture-backed firm, I highly recommend that book. Thought Leader listeners, thank you for listening. Stick with us now because we're going to be asking Ananth for his finance leader priorities over the next 12 months. We'll be right back. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. I think scaling. Um, you know, we've done a fantastic job um, to get to get the business to where we are on really understanding sort of some of the key drivers and KPIs. But as I look over the next 12 months to 24 months, we have to take that and continue to focus uh, a lot of our energy on process and compliance as well. Um, 
especially being a high velocity, high transaction business, um, ensuring, and with the emergence of ASC 606 and a lot of the new standards that are coming out, just making sure um, that we have the foundational infrastructure. So should we get to that point where we're scaling and we're going to be a billion dollar business, um, we want to make sure we're ready and as finance leaders and as a finance organization, ready to graduate us from sort of a private company to a public company um, or a private company that's going to be absorbed by a public company. So I think we just want to make sure that we have those railroads and, and, and really build that infrastructure to position ourselves to continue to scale. Anand Baba, thank you for joining us on CFO Fault Leader. No, thank you. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.